What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey, I'm genuinely excited and grateful for our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. Thanks to Athletic Greens supporting the Bureau podcast, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens, that's one word, dot com backslash frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Now there is an armor column three miles long. The Cold War never ended. This guy's an old KGB officer, a devout communist, until he was 49 years old. Vladimir Putin's all about operating in the dark. The airport was level. 6,000 some odd people in Russia arrested for protest. You know there's a Ukrainian army, right? Putin is livid, livid. Fierce spiders. The economy will collapse this week. I think Ukraine can win this. The world coming together as almost never before. We're at 1939 all over again. Malcolm Nance served 20 years in the U.S. Navy, rising to the rank of Senior Chief Petty Officer, a career terrorism intelligence collector, codebreaker, and interrogator with wide-ranging field and combat experience in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, and Africa. Malcolm is now a counterterrorism analyst for MSNBC. He's the author of multiple books, including a New York Times bestseller, Defeating ISIS, Who They Are, How They Fight, What They Believe. Importantly, just returned from travels throughout Ukraine, and he's here to give us his insights on the people, the places, and the prognosis for a crisis that has captured the world's attention. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. I know it's been incredibly busy uh, since your return. Thanks for being here. Well, it's my absolute pleasure uh, because I think that the American people really need to understand what's going on, not just in the world, but how it impacts their world. Yeah, when I when I heard you were back from Ukraine, I said we've we've got to get Malcolm on here. Let's let's put everything else on the shelf and and go with a special edition of the Bureau podcast. So here we are, Malcolm. Um, give us the download, the hot wash, as they say in the military. Let's start. I, I want to try to cover what I call the three P play, three P's: places, people, and prognosis. Where is this going? And and tell us where where you were in Ukraine, how long you were there. Give us a, a feel of what's on the ground in terms of the places you saw. And I'm going to give it to you, too, because I think this is really important. We've come to this inflection point in American history. And Ukraine is now embodying something that your parents and my parents saw in the 1930s. So first, let me let me start with the places. Uh, you know, I, I run a, uh, an, a small study group called the Asymmetric Projects for Tactics, uh, Strategy, Tactics, and Radical Ideologies. And prior to this, we had been studying the tactics of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, and then we got into the Russian cyber warfare with the Trump-Russia scandal. You know, I wrote, written four books now on the Trump-Russia scandal, you know, and they've all been Times bestsellers because, you know, I, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> I'd like to remind people, you know, I'm an old spy. And, uh, you know, I come from the naval intelligence world, but I was specifically oriented to land warfare and mainly in the Middle East. But, you know, some people say and Russia today said, oh, this guy's a Russia, quote unquote, expert. I'm not. What I am is uh, I'm one of those guys back when, you know, when you and I were junior people, officers, we paid attention to the counterintelligence briefs. 
and no one else paid attention. So I saw and operated in places where the KGB was in the end of the old Cold War, everywhere where I was. I mean, Alexandria, Egypt, we land there, KGB trying to flip us, get our defensive briefs for Naples, Italy, KGB trying to go after, you know, I was a cryptologist. So we're like the cream of the cream of the people that they would want to capture, you know, or at least turn into, uh, you know, intelligence assets. And, you know, I worked missions where Russia was militarily advising people everywhere. So Libya, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Russia, and the KGB. Fast forward to the fall of the Soviet Union and where Vladimir Putin, an ex-KGB officer, became the president of Russia. And uh, when the Trump-Russia scandal broke uh, in 2016, very, very, very early on, I had realized that the hacking of the DNC was, you know, was Watergate in reverse. And it had to benefit someone and it had to be executed by someone. And I had just finished a book called Hacking ISIS, where I had, we had identified all of ISIS's cyber warfare capability. But in it, we identified a false flag operation that was carried out by Russian military intelligence using a cyber warfare suite known as Fancy Bear. And so when the Russian hacking came out in 2016 and it was determined that it was the fancy bear and cozy bear suites that the Russian military intelligence and clandestine service used, I was like, oh, my God, they're back again. So very, very early on, I was trying to warn that it was Russia. Fast forward to all of that. We've pretty much identified how they operate in the world now. But more importantly, I discovered that the one thing that Vladimir Putin hates is not NATO. It's democracy. And I wrote a book called The Plot to Destroy Democracy, which was all about Russian intelligence's activities worldwide, which you could appreciate as a counterintelligence nightmare out there, um, to knock down liberal Western European governments and place them with right-wing autocratic governments. And they weren't funding communism. They were funding autocrats and right-wing extremists. United Russia, political, Putin's political party did that. So when Ukraine dared to have a revolution in 2014 that literally overthrew a pro-Moscow shill, right, Viktor Yanukovych, who was backed by one of the worst consultants in the world, Paul Manafort, right, of the dictator's lobby in Washington, D.C., Paul Manafort was his dirty activities being paid in cash guy in Ukraine. And it had gone back as long as 2006, when Manafort may in fact have been involved in an attack on the US Marines as they came to Crimea to carry out an exercise with the Ukrainians. And they were attacked with bottles and rocks and to the point where they had to be evacuated from the country. And that was stoking that pro-Russian intensity that in 2014 would lead Russia to invade Crimea. So I'm going about this circuitous route to get you to places, because you really need to understand Ukraine is deeply connected with all of the politics of today. We impeached a president of the United States for attempting to extort the current president of Ukraine, right, Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, with the very weapons that he is fighting Russia with today, the the Javelin anti-tank missiles, so that he would get dirt on the current president of the United States. It is incestuous on a crazy level. There's a lot there to unpack, and I, I know we're, we're we're moving to uh, we're, we're moving to the uh, the trip. And I I, wa- I want to just extract one concept for our listeners that you mentioned, which is look, look I've I've said. Throughout my career, uh, I've firsthand witnessed to the fact that the Cold War never ended with Russia. The number, for example, of Russian intelligence officers posted to the United States really never changed. Mm-hmm. So this concept that the Cold War was over, the, the Berlin Wall came down, all is well with the world. You mentioned that, look, this isn't really about NATO. It's about uh, hating democracy. That never changed. The, yeah. the concept that authoritarianism was was essential to the survival, the continued survival of what was left of Russia is essential to what we're witnessing today as people wrestle with why now, 
Why, why Ukraine? What's Putin's vision? Yeah. It, it is literally this concept that he is in a battle worldwide. Um, his vision is to restore the empire, and uh, that seemingly might want to be his legacy. But tell us, tell us as someone now, put this all in perspective right. for us for real in real time with what's going on sure. in, uh, in Ukraine. So Vladimir Putin, as you said, this guy's an old KGB officer. He was a Soviet, a devout communist, until he was 49 years old when the, when the, when the Berlin Wall collapsed. What is that, 89? <laughs> Almost 30 yep. years ago. Yep. Um, he has only become a billionaire oligarch, but he believes in the strategic goals the Soviet Union set out to do. And one of those was the dismantlement of Western liberal democracy. And he even said that two years ago in a speech where he said, uh, liberal democracy in the West is a failed ideology. And he was pushing autocracy. When I went to Ukraine in, in January of this year, I went because we had seen the buildup of forces in November and then all throughout December. And as we're finding out and reporting now from the New York Times and other outlets, the White House had a copy of the invasion battle plan, the entire invasion battle plan. And uh, they had been warning the Russians for two months. And by January, I had seen where this was going. And I said, you know, one of the things that we do with the Terror Asymmetrics Project is we get on the ground and we look at this. So what I did was we flew to Ukraine, a two-man team, and uh, myself and my co-author of Hacking ISIS. And we drove all of the routes in Ukraine that Russia would have to take from the borders to invade. And what you do is you get a feel for the highways, you get a feel for the roads, you get you count the number of gas stations, you see how much Armenian brandy is available between A and B, right? Which is going to be, you're going to find out that's a big motivator in some of these soldiers. There's videotapes of them looting these gas stations of the brandy and the cash. And so this was very important to me. And we started in the city of Kiev. And of course, the first thing we did was study the Maidan uh, revolution, the Orange Revolution, and then went down these routes. And in our one of our trips, we were invited by the Ministry of Defense to fly to Donetsk uh, because it's the one place you can't get to. You're not going to drive down there. It's a war zone. Right. Uh, so we flew down with the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, with the uh, commander of Ukrainian Army, General Sierski. Obviously, obviously, Malcolm, you had some connections. <laughs> Let me you tell had you. some connections. At that time, the, the, the funny thing is, is that I, I, I always tell people I'm not a journalist. No. Even though I yeah. comment on television, I'm just an old spy. Yeah. And there, I was on a plane full of journalists and, you know, people had figured out who we were and they knew that they had a perspective they wanted to show to someone that knew it. And in fact, uh, at the end of our, our little tour around the battlefront in Donetsk, after some gunfire sort of made us leave early, they asked me to do an interview for Ukrainian Army TV. And I said, oh, why me? And the, the, the one major there says, you're the only one who looks like you were a soldier. And I said, I was. He goes, you put your helmet on correct. You put your armor on correct. We want to talk to you. What do you right, think? Right, right. And those people are literally under attack right now. Some of them of may be dead. So we did that. We went all over the country. We started researching evacuation routes in our last 10 days. And we went to every border checkpoint of Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Poland. Mm -hmm. And now we advised all the journalists how to get out. We're actually carrying out support to NGOs now on how to evacuate their staff out of Ukraine. So then I, ironically, I came back, not because I, I wanted to, but because I needed to. We had a family matter that was pressing. And I flew out on the last Lufthansa flight out of the country. And six hours later, the airport was leveled. Uh, by a Russian cruise missile and ballistic missile attack. Mm. So I went around Ukraine with the eye to see it from the intelligence perspective, from the invaders perspective, and then right. from the perspective of the defenders. And I literally mapped out all of the Russian invasion units and saw where they would have to go. And that's why, to a certain extent, my reporting is a little more accurate on MSNBC than, than some people, because they see a gun battle in Kiev as a major invasion and the Russians are in the city, when in fact it was Spetsnaz that had infiltrated the city and were caught in an ambush 
that the Ukrainians were waiting for them in the single most perfect, beautiful ambush spot in the city, the yeah. zoo area, which has 20 story skyscrapers to the right and all down below is trees. And they wiped out the Spetsnaz column. But there's no Russians in the city right now. They're 20 miles outside and they're actually a little afraid to come in. So, that's so I, are. so I, yeah, I want to, I want to talk about your observations on the ground and now what you're seeing with regard to really a piss poor performance by Russian military and reports that essentially the head of the military, the de- the defense minister, has been fired. If that's accurate, did you envision that? Did you sit? Did you look around and go? I've, I've got a sense that this is going to be harder um, than the Russians think it is. You know, when, when we got there, I was really involved. I mean, you know, I bought, we have this we had this wall. We rented an office. And we have this massive map of every city in Ukraine with is a highway map. And we mapped out each of the individual Russian units in the Russia order of battle as, as best as we could tell. And so when you look that Kiev had dedicated two combined arm armies, when I say armies, it's like five to 10 battalion task groups whose sole function is to force their way down with armor and special operations. Then we saw all these helicopters, right? True story. In 1991, I, I, I was awarded a medal, an Air Force Achievement Medal, because I was in a school in West Texas, the Air Joint Service School of Cryptologic Intelligence. And everybody was saying that the invasion of Kuwait, which, you know, was an exercise Saddam Hussein was doing, was an exercise. And I had seen 50 helicopters massed together in one spot. And I said, you know, when I worked the Iran-Iraq war, I never saw more than five helicopters ever fly in Iraq together. And here's 50, right? I said, that's a commando force. They're going to fly right into Kuwait City and they're going to seize the country. That next morning, I'm watching on BBC, 50 helicopters flying to Kuwait City. When I saw these 70 Russian helicopters up near Chernobyl, I said, they're going to make a mass attack, not into the city, but there's an air base near there called the called uh, Khotomil, which is the Antonov airliner air base. It had the largest transport in the world, the Miriam, the, the dream dreamliner, that massive transport. They flew their helicopters in there and carried out my first prediction and tried to seize that airbase. Uh, they held it for a day. They were pushed out. They made another assault the next day with Chechen special forces from Chechnya. Yeah, yeah. Just today, their commander was killed in action. Unbelievable. Uh, against them, and the Chechens themselves were wiped out. Now there is an armor column three miles long. The special forces... And the airborne forces, the VDV, have been the leading edge of this invasion. The armor and the mechanized infantry have been coming up behind them, but they've been very slow, very methodical. Many of them didn't know they were actually invading Ukraine. It's astounding to me. That that's astounding to me. What what's behind that? How do you tell your soldiers? Right. What, give me some of that mindset, that Russian mindset. Hey, we're doing a drill, or we're not trusting you to to to, to know what to do here. Is this is this because of the obvious the 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 connections, the kinship that Russian soldiers feel toward Ukrainians? They they have yep. cousins. Family. What, what was that about? How do you not yeah. tell your soldiers what's going on? I mean, it would be like saying, you know, t- taking the Marine Corps and saying we're going to invade Baja. Right. And how many Marines would have relatives in Mexico yeah. or yeah. or own property in Baja who yeah. might be, you know, just Americans who own property or ski down there? You know, I mean, you know, do jet skiing or wind sailing. You, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're, we're doing what? You yeah, know, it's exactly. one thing to be in garrison around there and be told that you're doing these massive exercises. It's another thing when you start breaking out war stocks of ammunition and you think, okay, we're going to go to the live fire range. And then only your battalion commanders, battalion XOs, senior leadership actually know where you're going. And then you say, oh, there's in the next morning you wake up and you go, oh, there's Nazis in Ukraine. We're going to invade Ukraine and get rid of the Nazis and demilitarize them. But here's one thing the U.S. news media did that the Russians did as well, which which showed some of the poor performance on both parties' parts, Mm. they forgot there was a Ukrainian army. I mean, for a very long time, I was pulling my hair out on air going, you know there's a Ukrainian army, right? There's 250,000 men and women that I've been hanging out with who are 
fierce fighters. They also have the most combat experienced army in Europe because they have been rotating men in 10,000 at a time to fight in Donetsk, Luhansk. They also fought in Iraq. They had elements in Afghanistan. They have been training with the U.S. Army forever. And they've really recently made an NCO Corps, a non-commissioned officer corps, to take them away from that Soviet wow. model. Okay, so that's an in, that's an insight that most of us did not have, is that these people are not, I think, I think there's a sense that, hey, this is a ragtag bunch. And yes, we're mm. seeing volunteer civilians. But, but yeah, the successful missions are because these people have seen fighting. And, yes. and they're good and they've been trained. So I, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of the the territories that that I, I, I think have been you've been part of helping to reshape in the public image uh, and in, in the media what we're labeling the the so-called contested territories, mm-hmm. which really have been Russian occupied territories. Right. The ones where where Putin gets out and says, hey, these provinces are now uh, independent, right? right. And, 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 and yeah, tell us what the ground truth is about those areas. I mean, when you think about it, this would be like, the areas are Crimea, Donetsk, and Luhansk. These were three provinces, three states that belonged to Ukraine. And in 2014, the Russians decided to invade these three states because the populations there were Russian-leaning, politically conservative, ethnic Russian speakers, uh, and not Ukrainian speakers. You know, the rest of the country mainly speaks Ukrainian, which is not Russian. And Russia created a rebel army there made up of the ethnic Ukrainians declared them the legitimate government, and then invaded those three provinces, seized them, saying that they were there to liberate and stop the oppression of Russians who lived there. And then they got beaten in to a certain extent. They could not take the entire provinces. So they took all of Crimea because Crimea was essentially surrendered by Ukraine so that they wouldn't level it. Right. And because these soldiers were shocked that people that they were communicating with, that they went to war college with, that they were friends with, went into uniform and then attacked them and started killing them. So they surrendered. And then in Donetsk and Luhansk, the army got its act together and started fighting back, stabilized it. There were a few atrocities, including a negotiated settlement where 80 wounded Russians would be trucked out under the white flag. The Russians stopped shooting, but then told their directed their local rebels to wipe them out to a man. And they did. And at that point, it galvanized Ukraine. They were like, "Okay, that's it. Fights on. They have held a trench line to a certain extent, a World War One like line all the way down from the, the, the city of Luhansk in the north down to Donetsk in the south. And I went to Adovitsa, which is where they generally take press junkets, which was exactly 210 feet away from the Russian occupied lines. The reason we don't call them separatist rebels, because there were never any separatist rebels. There was the Russian army that came in, installed separatists, and then occupied the territory. So the technical term is Russian occupied territory. It is 100% now because the Russians have broken out of Crimea they right. went as far as Kyrgyzstan in the south, turned right. They have now taken the city of Melitopol. They're about to take the Azov Sea River city of Mariupol. And then they're going to connect that entire land bridge to Donetsk and Luhansk. But they have still yeah. not broken out of the battle lines of 2014. This is why they're trying to attack everywhere else in Ukraine and hoping that they can trap a major part of the Ukrainian army in this salient that yeah. is backed by the Dnipro River from Kiev all the way down south to the top city of Dnipro. Right, right. And Ukraine, Ukrainian military has some decisions to make about, you know, are we going to are we going to come into those other places and and fight or are we going to defend like hell Kiev? I got to tell you one quick thing here, Frank. Yeah, please. I look at this and people look at it as this this is a battle of attrition and they're being pushed back and there's no maneuver. The Ukrainians are clever enough to allow a strategic penetration into the country. And they've done this in Donetsk. 
and then maneuver quickly behind them and destroy all their rear area logistics and cut Russians. I suspect nice. we're going to see a couple of these. Nice. But the fighting around Kharkiv, second biggest yeah. city in the, in the country, 1.5 million people. The Russians thought the ethnic Russian-speaking Ukrainians there would greet them as liberators. Mm-hmm. They have kicked the Russians out of the city twice in, in, in 96 hours. Phenomenal. And they have now resorted to multiple rocket launchers into the center of the city, which may have killed dozens of people today. So we've, it's, it, what a great primer on, on the first P, places. Places you visited, places that are strategically important. You've, you've educated us on, on, on how to refer to these territories that are really occupied by Russians. Let's move on to the second P, mm-hmm. to the people. Hey, let's take a minute so I can thank our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. I've been taking Athletic Greens every single morning for several weeks because I wanted better gut health, more energy, a better immune system. And I hated taking a handful of pills, vitamins, and supplements every morning. So now, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, I'm absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. The blend of ingredients supports my gut health, my nervous system, my immune system, my energy level, recovery from workouts, my focus, and it helps with aging. Here's the problem. I've been raving about Athletic Greens so much around the house that when my adult son, who is a triathlete and a fitness and nutrition guy, finds out I've got Athletic Greens, he asks my wife to send him my package of Athletic Greens. It's gone. I need more Athletic Greens. I'll be talking to the sponsor about that. Athletic Greens. Look, tons of people take multivitamins, right, every day. It's important you choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. And Athletic Greens costs less than $3 a day. Think about that. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your coffee habit. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially with the cold and flu season upon us. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens will also send you free a one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. I use those, or at least I used to. With your first purchase, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash frank. Again, that is athleticgreens, one word, dot com slash frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to our podcast. And Malcolm, it's the people of Ukraine that have captured the minds of Americans. Um, give us a feel. You, you spent time on the ground there. I'm guessing you had maybe a drink or two with some, some of these folks. I'm just guessing. Um, what's this resilience, this sense of spirit and fight that is that we're seeing? And also talk to us about how seemingly they might have been reluctant to accept American intelligence on what was happening. Give us a sense of the, the Ukrainian mind. Well, you know, there's a there's a Ukrainian church here in, in the city that I that I live near here in upstate New York. And I went there yesterday just to say, hey, I'm Malcolm Nance from MSNBC. And they knew who I was. The priest knew who I was right away. He goes, you were on with the Minister of Information yesterday. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, we're we're sort of stubborn. Um, while I was there, first off, Ukrainians are wonderful people. They are actually very, very friendly people. They're the they're the Europeans that you know we talk about that we wish we had met on our trips. And <laughs> I was immediately introduced to people left and right, and everybody wanted to come over, and everybody wanted to meet for dinner, and everybody wanted to talk. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking. You guys know there's a tsunami coming, right? Uh, You know, but it's like sitting on the beach as the waters recede for a tsunami. And I'm looking at all the fishing boats out of the water and they're thinking we can make it to the hills if there's a tsunami. So I want to use that analogy because that's pretty accurate. So for three solid weeks, everyone was into not in denial. They kept saying this phrase when I said, well, you know, the Russians are really surrounding you. The intelligence is there. When I met General Sersky, commander of the the Ukrainian land forces, he is the General Milley of of Ukraine. And he said, we know the forces are there. What we haven't seen yet is we have not seen them 
break down into battalion task groups, which would have like a company of tanks, uh, specialized demining groups, uh, bridging equipment so they could quickly get across bridges, followed by mechanized infantry and then artillery. We haven't seen them organized like that. And he was right. They hadn't organized like that until about 96 hours before they invaded. And that's when the U.S. intelligence was going 72 to 96 hours. And even I saw it. I was watching, you know, some of the op open source intelligence. You could see they were now breaking down into these specialized task groups and moving to within kilometers mm -hmm. of the border. And when I saw that group of 70 helicopters move 25 kilometers from the border on in a roadway in a line, I go, OK, fights on there. You know, that's special operations. Yeah, they're going to yeah. jump into this country. Hey, you mentioned, I, I, I would be remiss, I, I, while I've got you, to, to not ask you about the intel side of this, because you, you, you just mentioned how precise in terms of timing uh, American was intel was. Yeah, I want to, I mean, look, we're both intel guys. I'm incredibly impressed, not only with the degree of penetration and access we seem to have to Russian uh, strategy uh, and timing and comms, mm -hmm. but also this, this really interesting strategy of releasing releasing the intel we have highly classified that was brilliant so yeah to, to essentially play a chess game what what are your thoughts on that well in fact i i was big fan of releasing that you know <laughs> my entire 30 you know my my entire 30 plus a year career including 20 in the navy uh, and 10 as an intelligence contractor i when i was in the navy i was also known as the guy i like to kill my sources all right so it was just like hey you know command post a is 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 doing this well, let's blow him up, <laughs> right? Whereas NSA had a philosophy of what we call ABC, always be collecting. So they didn't like it when their sources would literally be destroyed by airstrikes from my carrier group. But it's one less source that I have to collect against. Wow. So, you know, wow. what the White House did was a version of this. Yeah. Was, yeah. okay, we know Russia's doing this. We know they are on the path to war. Let's get ahead of them. I personally think that there was some intelligence that should have been declassified. And I went on the warpath for a couple of times against Jake Sullivan when he made the statement um, that they had the list of people that they were going to capture and kill yes. and that they knew it. Yes. I said, bring it out in the original Russian. Right. If it's right. a phone call, run to the UN like Ronald Reagan did with the yeah. Libyan air raid and play the phone call on to burn that source. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's all about operating in the dark. Right. And and the sunshine is his enemy. And and Biden made a decision to to put him in the sunshine with a, with the release of this intel. And yes, you're right. We should have even given up more. And I have to tell you, as a counterintelligence guy, mm -hmm. I know what's going on in the Kremlin right now, which is Putin is livid, livid that this much intel has leaked. And I am sure that there are people being beat up, imprisoned, fired, even perhaps eventually executed because Putin thinks, you know, that's the guy that gave that up, right? Can it's you imagine? counterintelligence, I, I, my, you know, when people were saying that to me, they were like, Malcolm, don't say that. Don't demand Jake Sullivan. You're going to burn sources. Okay, there's a way to burn sources, right? Sometimes find the guy that you hate the most and leak that that was the guy. Of course. <laughs> right? The that's most right. effective guy yeah. in their battle staff right. and say that it was him. And Putin yeah. will resolve the issue for us. Oh yeah, right? yeah. I mean, we, we the, the heads of the intel <laughs> Russian intelligence services are are sweating at, at a minimum right now. So so the people back to the the people. Yeah. Uh, the 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 will to fight, the will to fight. Did you see that? Did you see a sense that, yeah. that these these people are gonna gonna grab rifles yeah. and and take up arms? When I went down to Donetsk, I, I, I have a I have the video. It's an interview that uh, CNN is doing with uh, this general. And I don't know if they played it, but I'm off to the side recording them record him. And he's the battle commander at Donetsk, Luhansk, in charge of the joint task force that is fighting down there. Short little guy. And they ask him, I know you have Russians. You're fighting here. I get Donetsk. What if the Russians invade from the north? And you can just see him getting frustrated, right? And he goes, well, what if they invade near Kharkiv? Finally, he says, I don't care what direction they invade from. I'm going to fight them. And I thought, I've heard this before. In the Korean War, 
when the Marines were surrounded at the Chosin Peninsula, right? It was, oh, great. Now we can attack in any direction, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this guy was hardcore determined. He, he had already been in this game, right? And if they come from the north, that just gives him an opportunity to bite him in the butt from the south. And I realized these people are really going to take it to them. Same thing with General Sersky, the commander of the land forces. He was under siege with all these ridiculous questions. And when I went up to him, you know, he was just like, yes, what is your question? And I go, nothing, selfie. You know, <laughs> we took yeah. a selfie together. Yeah. And he was just so happy yeah. that somebody would see him as, as a guide to be seen. And I'm like, right. you're like George effing Washington here. That's right. You know, That's right. you're, you're going to be the guy who's going to be leading this battle. And I wanted yeah. to be around this historic figure. And they are doing it. The reason these offensives are not moving quickly is because of the, you know, I, what's the old saying? It's not about the size of the dog in the fight. It's about the size of the fight in the dog. And they are proving this. Look, maybe they will have to fall back. Maybe they'll lose Kharkiv. Maybe they've already lost Sumi, I believe, in the Northeast. Maybe they'll lose a little near Chernihiv. They've got to maneuver because the goal is not to just take terrain. The goal is to destroy the Ukrainian army. Mm. And so they're going to fall back over time. Uh, but to give up each piece of ground, they're going to destroy five or 10 tanks. Yeah. And at some yeah. point, we're already seeing it. The Russians are running out of fuel. They're running out of fight. And I, I said this on air on MSNBC yesterday morning with Chris Jansing. I said, um, I'm now the only national security analyst that's going to say this. I think Ukraine can win this. And she was like, whoa, whoa, what are you saying? And I go, I think they can win it. It doesn't mean that they'll keep Kiev. I personally think they'll keep Kiev. I don't think the Russians can take Kiev at all. It's Chicago. It's as big as Chicago, only with rings of 20-story Soviet-built high-rises. It is a death trap. I, I, I took part in the invasion of several countries, right? Yeah. This isn't Baghdad with its two-story buildings, which caused us an enormous amount of trouble. This right. is Stalingrad. And you're going to have to treat it like Stalingrad and have what I call the largest Molotov cocktail party in history. And they did it. They're doing it. And they've already knocked off two attempts to penetrate the city. And they aren't surrounded. Somehow someone got out there that they were surrounded on all, which is ridiculous. Only two points in the northeast and the north of the city, and they've counterattacked and are wiping out these armor columns. This armor column that's three kilometers long or three miles long, that's in the northwest side of the city, I have seen that column before on Death Valley, Hell's Highway, north yeah. of Kuwait City. Yeah. And only these guys are on the attack. I suspect that column will not survive the next mm. few days. They will have anti-tank teams out there day and night blowing up every other tank. And then that column will just be a burning wreck. I, I got to tell you, I am buoyed by someone with your experience, um, uh, military experience, saying, saying this. And I think our listeners are as well, because I think it's, uh, it's not just pie in the sky. I think it's founded on, on reality. And, and from someone who's been on, on the ground there, I, I'll also add that if, if the Russians are successful in so-called taking Kiev, it would, it would end up in a, in a city that they really don't want to take. They, they'd okay. have to, they'd have to bombard this and what, and they'd have to destroy the, those buildings, the advan the, yeah. the tactical advantage yeah. Um, to a point where it's it's leveled, and and why aren't why aren't we seeing that that air that air game yet? The because bombardment. Putin doesn't want the city leveled, and I'm sure some of his combat commanders are saying this because remember they fought in Chechnya for for years, decades actually in yeah. Chechnya before they the way that they subjugated everyone was to kill everyone. Yep. That's not a joke. What they did in northern Syria was a model of Chechnya. The first thing they did, they didn't hit the concentrations of men. They blew up every hospital in northern Syria right. to bring pain to the population. Then they hit bread uh, shops. They killed, they destroyed every ambulance on the road. They removed all infrastructure, then water and power. And then they went after the concentrations of troops to make the population so miserable. In Kyiv or any of these major cities, we're seeing it in Kharkiv, a little bit in the city of Sumy. One of the things that people need to understand is when you create rubble like that, Stalingrad-like rubble, Berlin, 1945 levels of rubble, you give the defenders a multiplier of two to four. 
in combat because the rubble is now a compatible terrain in which you can hide, ambush, snipe, mine. You want nice, clean highways. And I think the order was we're taking this place cleanly. He, I think Putin was assured by his special operations and his armor commanders they could do it without leveling the city. Again, right. Kiev is physically the size of Chicago from the river to O'Hare. Very helpful. And then from the south to the north, only with 10 times more apartment blocks, these old Soviet-built concrete apartment blocks. And they're going to have guns firing in every direction down on them. Very helpful to know. And and really, we're now deep into the third P prognosis. You've already talked about where you sure. think that this may be headed. Yeah. Um, and and look, a, a, a almost a permanent insurgency resistance is is quite likely here. The you know, you, the, the Russians are in for a long, long haul on this. Uh, you you see a resistance that that goes on uh, for for a long time happening. Well, I, I personally don't see that Russian will take the whole country at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they'll, even if they surround Kiev, they won't take Kiev for a very, very long time. Right. Um, you know, the, 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 the Soviets, in fighting the Nazis, tried to cross the Dnipro River and suddenly realized they went from flatland in the east to a mountainside that they had to go up. And the Germans just slaughtered them over and right. over and over again. They're still going to have to do that. Yeah, yeah. I don't care what well, tanks you have. You know, the other the other uh, half of the prognosis equation involves Russia itself. As we record this, Malcolm, we've we've awakened this morning to a Russian ruble that is collapsing. Yeah. Um, the economy, the new sanctions. You know, how long can Russia endure this? And do do you see mm. a colossal uh, threat and risk here for Putin? With regard to his own people, now now some odd uh, six thousand some odd people in Russia arrested for protests. Mm-hmm. Um, the economy will collapse this week, seemingly. Um, the world coming together as almost never before in, tar- in terms of NATO. NATO activating its uh, its reaction force mm-hmm. for the first time in history. Um, Nord Stream pipeline not happening. What, what's the prognosis for, for Russia and Putin at this point? I mean, the man was warned. He was warned very specifically that they would crash the Russian economy and turn them into a global pariah. So now the question is, and the entire question from the beginning of this is why, right? The most fundamental of all the, of the Whiskey Five Hotel, as we say in the intelligence community, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Why is always the most important intelligence question? Because when you collect intelligence that answers that, you are deep into the enemy's head. We are not quite into Putin's head because no one can understand. We're actually sitting here going back and doing Soviet-level criminology, the study of why the Politburo does what it did. And Putin is an old Soviet, mentally. And this attack on Ukraine is not about NATO. He says he doesn't want NATO nations on his border. Well, he has Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland. So it can't be about NATO. And what it really is about is democracy. In 2014, they took their own uh, destiny in their own hands. They created a relatively wealthy, and I hear people say, well, Ukraine has the second lowest GDP in Europe. Well, let me tell you about that second lowest GDP. These are people who are not, do not have a lot of wealth, but they live a very well-groomed middle-class lifestyle with that low GDP. I've been around some places. I've seen Moldova. I've seen Albania, okay? You want to talk about a, a, a place with a very low GDP where it looks like, it's, when you say it, it looks like Albania. Yeah. When I drove around Ukraine, I thought, wow, this is more like Ireland. Wow, wow. Uh, only without all the trash that the right. Irish dump and, you know, in Ireland, they got a trash problem. Um, they dump it in all the little culverts. So so Ukraine is working is working too well for Putin's liking. That's exactly it. Scares the hell out he of him. He wants the wealth. He yep. wants the land. He wants those people as vassals. And they refer to him as they refer to him as these sort of, you know, poor white trash mm-hmm. is the term that they use. But what he's most afraid of is they were actually turning into progressive, democratic well off. I mean, in Kiev, I've never seen so many Teslas. 
I mean, I've really? never seen really? more Tesla. I'm telling you, more Teslas in Kiev than I saw in Hollywood. Son of a gun. I yeah. mean, you wouldn't yeah. believe it. Here's the cars they love. Teslas, BMW, yeah. high-end BMWs, X6s, X, you know, and and Mercedes-Benz sedans. They're okay. everywhere. That's that's I, a great I insight. To hunt for a Lada. And the yeah. first Lada I saw was actually a display in front of a bar. So that <laughs> yeah. country is not what you think about an Eastern European capital. I, at times, I couldn't tell whether I was in Stuttgart or Lyon. Wow. So, yeah, it's working way too well for Putin's liking. And yeah. he's 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 fearful. This is this stuff is going to catch on. This democracy thing is going to catch on. It's and it, and it, it poses a direct threat to him. The other thing I've got, I think is going to be so appropriate to close out with mm-hmm. with you, who spent a career looking at the threat of terrorism radicalization internationally now having to apply it as I do on TV with with you sometimes apply it domestically. Wouldn't it be the height of irony, Malcolm, if, if it takes this battle in Ukraine, a young uh, democracy, young people fighting for their freedoms against a clear threat and enemy, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be the height of irony if it takes that for Americans to be reminded of what we stand for, what we should be fighting for, and what freedom um, means to us. We're seeing a, a sea change in in people on Fox News, for example, mm-hmm. um, in the people in the GOP now r- realizing they're going to be on the wrong side of history if they continue to praise Putin. It seems to be people are snapping in. Would it be something if it takes us looking at Ukraine to remind us of what we should be standing for? You know, I, I, I got excoriated for this on Tucker Carlson once, an A block. And I always know when Tucker Carlson mentions me in the A block, because I get about 100 death threats the next morning. And I go, Tucker Carlson mentioned me. Yep. Or every if it's 50 death threats, it's Laura Ingram. Yeah. So yeah, same here, same here. One, one of the, the interesting things that I've noticed is that Russia's invested an enormous amount of time, well over a decade and a half, to changing the opinion of the conservative right uh, about the, 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 the goodness of Vladimir Putin in Russia. And then when they put Donald Trump into power, you know, it became policy. Don't forget, Paul Manafort was the guy who came in and changed the Republican Party platform in 2016, removing all of the support for Ukraine against Russia. So, and, and changed Donald Trump into this Russian, you know, or help Donald Trump find his Russia love that he had already had. So that being said, one third of the electorate, not the nation, the electorate, which comes out to about 11% of the American public, support Vladimir Putin openly because Donald Trump supports him openly. And Trump said it just last night. He said it again, that, you know, he was a genius, that this was great, that, you know, maybe we should do this on Mexico. But you know, you are can be caught on the wrong side of history to the point where, as I, I, I openly say this, you know, Tokyo Rose in Japan and Lord Haw Haw in England were both tried for war crimes. But I will go to the Met. I will defend with my life Tucker Carlson's right to say anything stupid that he wants on Fox News. But there are consequences to right. saying things when you openly support a enemy, a near peer adversary, whatever you want to call it, against democracy. And I'm a Philadelphia, so I'm a pure 100% originalist, you know, little d, you know, constitutional, written down at 6th and Chestnut, or 6th and Market Street, Democrat, who believes in democracy. And my family has served 150 nonstop years in the military to make the American experiment a more perfect union, even when we were, my dad was being spat on and being called the N-word in World War II. And my grandfather in World War I in France found he was only treated equally by the French. And my great-great-grandfather in the Indian Wars who died and is buried in Fort Leavenworth, you know, as a Buffalo soldier. And, and, and his brother, who was in the, you know, the Tennessee River Valley with him, in the Civil War and ran away from slavery, we know this experiment's not great. But we know if you don't participate and defend it, and my family with your life, then it will fail. And we're pretty close to failing. Yeah. But I think that Zelensky may have done us all a favor, as you said. Yeah. 
It's just a rebirth of Atlanticism, which appeared to have been on the rocks. And, and to understand that those wars in Europe do affect us. We're at 1939 all over again. The only question is, are the Republicans going to start talking bad about Ukrainian refugees the way they did the Jews on the St. Louis, you know, with their send them back attitude? Well, J.D. Vance did that just the other day. Mr. Hillbilly Elegy was saying, well, why should I care about what's happening 6,000 miles away when, uh, you know, it, 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 we're not taking care of my mom? Well, Democrats were taking care of his mom and he called it communism. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. are we going to send people back to their deaths yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. if Ukraine falls? Stand for democracy or we lose democracy. You, you, you're absolutely right. I stand with it. You're absolutely right. Yep. We can't agree on wearing a mask, getting a vaccine or even who won the last presidential election. And while we're we're doing that stuff. People are, are fighting for their lives and their freedoms for democracy. Hey, Malcolm, you've given us some hope, some, some insights, and some ground truth. Thanks for going over there. Thanks for sharing mm-hmm. your observations with us. Stay safe, my friend, and keep uh, preaching the gospel. I will. Amen. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on a special edition of the Bureau with Frank Figlusi as Malcolm Nance offered us the ground truth on his trip to Ukraine. Next week, MSNBC legal analyst, law professor, and former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance will share the compelling story of how the murder of her father-in-law by a serial bomber led her to a career change. Joyce will also speak candidly about her role as a cable TV analyst. And she'll offer us some chicken coop for the soul. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.